This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Remnant Radio, our 8.30 p.m. live show. We've got Dr. Ben Witherington the third on the other line. Uh, we're going to be discussing Armenian theology. Before we do that, I want to give you a quick guide to Remnant Radio if you're new to our channel. We're at Theology Broadcast. We stream every Monday night, 8.30 p.m. Central Time and Tuesday at 4. Uh, but Due to the magic of Corona, we have been able to interview tons and tons of theologians. This is our, our third interview today. So sometimes we go into overdrive. <laughs> the magic of Corona. The I've magic not heard of Corona. anyone else refer to it that way. Well, if, if you're not aware, Michael, there is a pandemic. Is it a dark magic, maybe? No. <laughs> there is a pandemic, and it's called unsubscribe tinnitus. If you haven't subscribed, you need to make sure you subscribe to <laughs> the YouTube channel as we're coming out with tons of content just like this. Uh, but we are a theology broadcast. We interview pastors and teachers from all over the world, different churches, denominations, guys like N.T. Wright, Wayne Grudem, Craig Keener, the like. Uh, We have them on the show, discuss theology, suspend our presuppositions, and really try to understand God's word from our Christian brothers that might be across the aisle, uh, metaphorically speaking. Uh, But to my left, your right, I have Pastor Michael Roundtree. (sighs) Tell us, how has your day been, Michael? (laughs) My day, Art, and talking about the Ten Commandments. He wrote a book about the Ten Commandments. It was a beautiful meditation. Uh, upon the Decalogue, and and the discussion was very powerful. I thought uh, after uh, after that, we also had an interview with Dr. Sam Storms talking to the spiritual gifts. We talked about uh, apostles; are they still for today? Prophecy uh, is that still for today? And if so, what does it look like? And what kind of authority do prophets speak with? And so uh, and we talked all gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, and just really really great discussion there. And uh, tomorrow we have Dr. Robert Letham with us, and we're talking about the four truths about Pentecost. So Pentecost, that's what we're talking about. So how's my day? My day has been remnantful. (laughs) Nice. Uh, uh, Before we uh, digress into further, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Digress. Until, until we further digress, uh, I'll have uh, you introduce our Or dive guest. in, dive maybe. In. Uh, uh, Dr. Ben Witherington, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we discuss the subject today. Sure. I am uh, a teacher at Asbury Seminary. I am the Amos Professor of New Testament for doctoral studies at Asbury, also on the doctoral faculty at St. Andrews University in Scotland. I've been at Asbury for 25 years. Before that, I taught in various other places, including Vanderbilt and Duke. Um, I've written 60-some books. My most recent major book is uh, a textbook on biblical theology, which won the Book of the Year Award this past spring for Religion and Theology. Uh, It's the Prose Award, which is the national award that's like the Booker Prize for Fiction. So um, that's my most recent uh, major work that I've done. And, uh, you know, I've written a commentary on every book of the New Testament. Okay. 
Awesome. Well, we want to dive into the subject of Arminianism today. Before we do, I'm I'm just a little curious, Dr. Witherington. Can you tell us about this wonderful architectural structure that is behind you for those who are watching this visually? It's the El Dair Monastery on top of the mountain at Petra. And I figured since we're going to talk about the solid rock today that you needed to see some rocks in the background. So this is... <laughs> This is a Nabataean structure. It was a dining structure originally that later was turned into a monastery. Uh, and it's there because this is one of the places that Paul spent his hidden years. He says he went to Arabia, which meant Petron Arabia. So this is one of the places Paul was hanging out before his famous missionary journeys. Okay, cool. Well, wonderful. Well, let's dive into the subject of Arminianism, and maybe you could just, uh, for our viewers, a, a lot of our viewers know what that is, and some of them don't. Could you just define for us what is Arminianism? I know there are, for one, some, several different types, classical, Westland, but just most broadly, what is Arminianism? Well, Jacob Arminius was, in fact, a, a Dutch Reformed person who came to the conclusion that, that Calvin was wrong about some of the major tenets of the Reformed faith in various ways. For example, the notion that Christ died for the elect was something that Arminius just couldn't find in the scriptures. And also, he was um, he concentrated a good deal on the apostasy texts, in the New Testament. And of course, if the P of TULIP, which means the perseverance of the saints, the five points of Calvinism, if the P is not true, then three of the other four can't be true either. Because hmm. if there is no perseverance of the saints, then there is no predestination to be eternally saved, come what may, do what you will. And, uh, and so, Arminius, basically, within a reformed structure, raised questions about the doctrine of election and the way that was all framed. Now, um, there were plenty of other people who were not Calvinists out there. There were Baptists who were free will Baptists. There were Quakers. Uh, Wesleyanism is, a, is an 18th and then 19th century development. There's a sort of uh, take on Arminian theology, uh, a, a very uh, specific kind of take, and it's even less reformed than Jacob Arminius's take on this. I mean, uh, John Wesley was insistent that Christ died for the sins of the world, not for the elect, that the atonement was efficacious for the sins of the world, and what decided somebody got salvation or not was whether they, by grace, through faith, embraced it. It was not decided in advance by God. So that, that kind of Wesleyan Arminianism is the kind of Arminianism that really became uh, so prevalent in North America in the 19th and into the 20th century. What's really interesting about this is that um, the Reformed folks in America were mostly Presbyterians, not Baptists. Today, you might well run into a lot of Reformed persons that were mostly Baptists. 
and not Presbyterians, which is mm-hmm. interesting. But but if in terms of the size of these denominations, I mean, to this day, Methodism is the second largest Protestant denomination in America after Southern Baptists. And so actually, there are a whole lot more Methodists out there than there are Reformed folks out there. It's because you have to take into account the Wesleyan Church, the Nazarene Church, all the Pentecostal churches, which are spinoffs from Wesleyanism, the Holiness Churches, the AME Zion, et cetera, et cetera. So the question really is, when we're talking about Arminianism versus Calvinism, why is it that Calvinism has sort of dominated the theological discussion in the evangelical world in the past 50 to 100 years. Why is that the case? And the basic answer to that goes back to the nature of Methodism, which was we were a bunch of circuit riders concerned with converting people right, left, and center, and not so concerned about having a highly intellectual, well-learned clergy. That was the Presbyterian tradition. It's really only in the 20th century that Methodists and some other major denominations, some Baptists, American Baptists, for example, required people to go to seminary or even later to get a PhD. So that's actually a very modern development in the 20th century. So just a little bit of church history helps you understand uh, where things actually stand as to where people might assume uh, things stand uh, in North America in terms of evangelical theology. Excellent. So, so when you speak of kind of Armenian theology, and we're going to be asking you questions today on Armenian theology, uh, where exactly would you find yourself landing if you say, hey, there are different kinds of Armenian theology uh, today, yep. what you're going to be presenting will be from this position. Uh, how sure. would we kind of stay I would probably be called a Wesleyan evangelical. Okay. Okay, excellent. So um, uh, I, I think my first question um, is a question of depravity. When I talk to Calvinists constantly, uh, I'm told that the difference between an Armenian and a Calvinist comes down to how we define depravity. Uh, can you kind of speak into that? Do you agree with that statement? Do you yeah, wholeheartedly I think disagree? that's totally wrong. Okay. Completely wrong. John Wesley was as strong on the total depravity of the whole human race after the fall as any Calvinist has ever been. That's really not the issue. The issue is, is God's prevenient grace of such a kind that it enables people to respond to the gospel um, before they're saved. That's the real issue. Agreed. It's not a question of, oh, we've got a Pelagian view of, of human fallenness mm-hmm. as opposed to a Calvinist view of grace. In fact, John Wesley's view is that God, in his graciousness, enables people to respond to the gospel freely. Uh-huh. Uh, not, it's not irresistible grace, it's enabling grace. And so, yes, to total depravity, but also, yes, to universal prevenient grace. Okay, and uh, so for our listeners, if you could maybe unpack what the, uh, just what prevenient grace is, and could you explain maybe here this scripture, that scripture, these are the passages that I would go to to show that prevenient grace is really a thing that they're, that, uh, yeah, so I'll just stop it there without kind of adding anything else. So could you do that? Sure. Um, if, if you, you know, first of all, 
the word grace really doesn't come up in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So the place you have to look for the discussion of grace is, in fact, in the New Testament, and of course, particularly in places like Paul. Interestingly, there are large chunks of even the New Testament that doesn't talk about grace. I mean, did you know that the word grace only comes up once in John chapter 1, in the whole Gospel of John? Hmm. That's it. That's it. So basically, the debate about grace uh, has to do with how you read Paul and, and perhaps how you read Acts as well. That, that's really where it comes down to, and, and perhaps First Peter. That's kind of where the conversation centers. So the question becomes, what is the nature of this grace? And the more pertinent question in regard to soteriology is, is this grace irresistible or is it resistible? And so you can't really talk about grace without talking about the whole issue of is apostasy for a genuine believer possible or not? Uh I mean, the test case for irresistible grace would be something like Hebrews chapter six. Uh Here's somebody who has, in fact, been converted, who believes in Jesus Christ and under pressure and through his own choice has decided to commit apostasy. Well, if that's possible, then grace is not irresistible. Well, then what is going on with grace? Grace is something that enables persons to respond to the gospel before their conversion. And after their conversion, it's the work of God's grace that sanctifies and leads to glorification eventually. And without grace in every step of that process, before, during, and after conversion, nobody gets saved. So, of course, salvation is by grace, but it's also through faith. It's not predetermined by God. It's by grace and through faith. So, you really have to look at a complex, but what I'm trying to tell you is, it's not enough to do a word study on grace. Uh You have to do a study a complex of ideas, including the atonement. Uh-huh. I mean, you have to really take seriously what, for example, First Timothy 2 says, that God sent Christ to die for the sins of the world, that, that he atoned for the sins of the world, uh, that, that uh, John 3.16 is not fibbing when it says that God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life because he didn't send Christ into the world to preach the bad news. He sent him into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So that's the purpose of God. That's the intent of God. And uh, God is graciously working those things out. Now, practically speaking, what that means is that Luther was wrong. Luther was an Augustinian monk. I mean, Calvinism really is a spinoff from Augustine's theology. And Luther was an Augustinian monk. And what Luther held to was that people are in the bondage of sin before and even after conversion. Read his treatise on the bondage of the will. Read Edwards's treatise on the freedom of the will. Basically, what they're arguing is there is no such thing as free will, either enabled by grace 
or not enabled by grace, things are simply predetermined before the foundation of the universe by God. Well, the Wesleyan position is that actually what Romans 7 and 8 says is right. Namely, that the Spirit of God has set the believer free from the bondage of sin so that they have a choice about their behavior thereafter. And uh, and it's uh, so there's this strong emphasis on the power of God's grace to change a human life, uh, strong emphasis on the Spirit of God enabling people to do what God calls them to do, and a rejection of the Lutheran doctrine of the bondage of the will even after conversion. Excellent. Hey, so uh, I actually... I want to say I, I don't think I probably said it the exact same way you did when I was uh, on the uh, talking to Michael before the show. Uh, he he said the linchpin being on uh, depravity is like I think the linchpin of the argument is on grace. Uh, personally, I have a vested interest uh, for whatever reason is maybe it's because I read too much of Luther, but. Uh, to believe that the grace of God is monergistic. I'd be curious how you understand synergism and monergism. I've often been told by Calvinists that if I was, if I'm to hold a non-Calvinist view of grace, then the grace of God as a prevenient way would be placed upon the human heart. Me and Michael will be an example. Michael chooses to accept God. I choose not to accept God. Therefore, there can be some boast or merit that Michael chose correctly and I chose incorrectly. So they would say that faith, that choosing then is synergism because there's something good in you that chose. Uh, how would you make sense of that kind of understanding first? So give us that understanding of monergism and synergism. Where do you think that Arminianism falls within that line? And then maybe explain to us uh, how first, there is no First, boast. I would say that's a false, that's a false conundrum. Okay. The first thing I would say, because nobody and not because of any goodness in any human being chooses God. It has to do with the grace of God. Nobody is enabled to choose God without God's grace, period. However, the question is, how does grace work? How does grace work? Does grace make you an offer you can't refuse? <laughs> Or does grace enable a person? Which is it? Is God the Godfather? Or is God someone who approaches us in love? And this is what my most recent book is dealing with, about the moral character of God. First John 4 is very clear. God is love. Now, what's the nature of love? Love cannot be predetermined. Love cannot be coerced. Love cannot be manipulated. God, as love, is a free agent. What do we think about God giving us commandments to love him with all our being and love our neighbor as ourself? And Jesus adds, love our enemies, which means that we have freely received the gift of God's grace and love and been enabled to freely respond to him and to others in love. If God is love, God is not about predetermining anybody to be anything. He's created us in the image of God. He's renewed us by the grace of God in order that we might be holy as he is holy. 
And that's enabled by the grace of God. So it's not a question of monergism versus synergism. There is no monergism in a personal relationship between us and God. There's always and always has been synergism. Hmm. When In Genesis, it's perfectly clear. Let's take Abraham, for example. What does it say? It says, Abraham trusted God. And it was rec- his trusting God was reckoned to him as righteousness. There was no imputed righteousness in the case of Abraham. And frankly, there's also no imputed righteousness in the case of us either. There's imparted righteousness by the grace of God. That whole theology is not in the Bible. And so the issue has always been God wants to have a relationship with us that is not like a relationship between a magnet and iron filings. It's a personal relationship. It's a love relationship, something that requires something that's freely given and freely responded to. We respond to God as persons who love God because we've been enabled to love God by his grace. So, When we look at a text like Philippians 2 that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we shouldn't just sort of all of a sudden flinch and say, oh, well, that's a problem right there. No, because God has always been working for us and in us to will and to do. And we are simply responding. You know, it would be like uh, Shakespeare's quill pen saying, I wrote 35 pretty good plays. When my salvation is a result of the fact that God has taken hold of me and infused his grace into me and related to me in a loving way, like the heavenly father that he is, then it's not a question of monergism. It's a question of synergism. But these two parties are not equal. God is God, and I'm a mere human being. Nevertheless, my response, if it's going to be love, has to be freely given by me. And that's not something I can boast about any more than Shakespeare's quill pen can boast. I wrote some great plays. Sure. So uh, for the the Calvinist, again, just, just trying to fill that the space of the conscious objector as we have Calvinist in the comment section that say, okay, The word synergism means uh, like a together work, that you're working together. Um, Paul seems to make a a great effort in saying that salvation is not by any works that we can can obtain on our own. How would you make sense of that? Well, that's talking about how you get saved in the first place. There are three tenses to salvation in the Bible. I have been saved, justification by grace through faith. I am being saved, sanctification, and I shall be saved to the uttermost, at the resurrection, when I'm fully conformed to the image of Christ. Now, until you go through all three tenses of salvation, things are, wait for it, tense. The issue is not predetermined. The issue is not predetermined. Justification is only the porch of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. Sanctification is required to get to the finish line unless you die five seconds after being justified. Okay. Okay. Sanctification is required. We have to work out our salvation as God is working in us 
to will and to do. If that's not synergism, I don't know what it is. Yeah, We're both working. Uh, God is working in me. I am working it out. Okay? Uh, that's what it is. Okay. Now, what would you say to somebody who says, well, Dr. Witherington, it sounds like you're you're saying that that Christ gives us the gift of salvation, but we have to work in order to keep it. And if we have to work in order to keep it, then we're actually partially earning this. And and that your description of sanctification sounds like salvation by works. And and so what would you say to that objection? And I would say no. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would say because God's grace is working in the process of sanctification. Mm-hmm. It, it, God doesn't sort of just hand you the football and say, run down the field. Mm-hmm. That's not how sanctification works. Sanctification is God continuing through the Holy Spirit to work in us. And we are working out what God is working in. If God's not working it in, I am so not working it out. So there is no merit on my part. There's nothing that I am doing that's apart from God's work in me. Okay. So it's really just grace is coming into you at the moment of justification. You're responding in faith and in sanctification. You're continuing to respond in faith, which naturally plays itself out. And God's grace, God's grace doesn't stop at justification. It's it keeps going for the whole Christian life. Right. It's an everyday process. Uh, God is pouring as, as Romans five says, God is pouring into our hearts, his love on an ongoing basis, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Every single day, I have to live out the Christian life as God is working in me to will and to do. How and are so you? Go ahead. It's not God did something and now I'm doing something. Gotcha. So how, how do you define apostasy? Uh, because you had, you've mentioned apostasy a couple times. Wesley uh, really doubles down on it. Jacob Armenia seems to double down on it. How do you understand uh, the doctrine of apostasy? Is this just no longer plus placing faith and trust in Christ? Or would you also say when your works don't line up with your faith? How would you understand apostasy? Well, um, I, I would define apostasy First of all, I don't believe, believe people can lose their salvation like you'd lose a pair of glasses. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, where's my salvation? Is it under the chair here somewhere? Sure. <laughs> I had it yesterday. I don't have it today. No. Apostasy is a willful rejection of the work of God that he has already done in your life. Or, as Hebrews defines it, crucifying Christ afresh in your life. Even though he already died for you and you accepted that. So apostasy is a conscious, willful rejection of God's work in your life. Now, if you haven't had any of God's work in your life, any saving work of God in your life, you can't even commit apostasy. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. Those who have never been saved can't commit apostasy. But apostasy is not about, uh, okay, I'm a Christian, but I also still commit sins. I don't know any Christians who don't do that. Uh-huh. That's, of course, true. And the way to deal with that is repentance and forgiveness. Uh-huh. And that's how it should be dealt with. That is something very different from committing apostasy. Uh-huh. It's a rejection of the work of Christ in your life. And, and there are lots of components to that. You can reject it by intellectually. You can reject it by your deeds. 
you know, as Jesus says, you'll know the tree by the fruit that it bears. Mm. That's exactly right. So, yes, there are people who appear to be Christians who turn out not to be Christians. Of course, that's true. That That's always been true. There are always, you know, just because the mouse is in the cookie jar doesn't make them a cookie. Just because people go to church doesn't mean they're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. But when you're talking about a genuine born again Christian who has genuinely accepted Christ, accepted the love of God, has returned that love of God as best they can and loves their neighbor as themselves. And then somewhere along the way decides, I just don't believe this. I don't trust this anymore. I'm not interested in living this lifestyle anymore. Now, I do not think that God willingly lets you go. I I think it's true that, in fact, that, that God is a wooer of persons. He's a lover of persons. And just as in in a, let's say, a marriage relationship where one of the partners really wants to depart and and divorce the person and wants to consciously break the relationship and the other partner works very hard to prevent that from happening. I don't think John Wesley wrote several sermons about this. He talks about the difference between grieving the spirit when you sin, Christians do that, and quenching the spirit. And what Paul says is that it's even possible to quench the spirit in your life. And that's a big no-no. You don't want to go there. You don't want to completely reject the work of God in your Mm -hmm. life. So he warns against it. All of these warnings, serious warnings. Uh, For example, in Galatians 5, Paul says, Anybody who persists in a path of being an adulterer or this or that or the other or an idolater shall not enter the kingdom of God. Well, who's he warning about this? He's warning Christians. He's not warning people that are pretending to be Christians. He's saying, if you continue to pursue this course of life, you will not enter the kingdom of God at the end when it comes. So, while you are in this life, you're not eternally secure till you're securely in eternity. Hmm. Short of going to be with Jesus at death or when Christ returns, there is always a tension in the Christian life between being faithful and then the possibility, however unlikely, of committing apostasy. Now, me personally, I have not run into a lot of people that have committed apostasy. I, I grew up just down the road from Billy Graham in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he had a member of his Billy Graham evangelistic team that uh, was a tremendous evangelist, uh, genuinely a born again Christian. And as he continued to work in the Billy Graham Association over a long period of time, he began to have doubts about all of this. And then he became rebellious about all of this. And finally, he rejected all of this. And Billy even went so far as to go to Toronto after he had left the association uh, near the time of the person's death and tried to reconvince him that he needed to embrace Jesus all over again. And it didn't work. And what happened as a result of that is Billy Graham said, well, I'd always taken a more reformed approach to this kind of issue. But I guess apostasy is possible. However unlikely, 
it is possible. Mm-hmm. I like to use an analogy. Take a take a mental image of a person who's a father and a child. Now the child is old enough to have a will of their own. If you've ever had children, and we have, <laughs> uh, we've had three. Um, they become willful. It doesn't take them long to become willful. No but doubt. picture a parent and a child walking across a busy highway that for some reason they have to cross a very busy highway, a four-lane highway, let's say. Now, the parent has a firm grasp on the child. And if the child doesn't willfully, consciously wrench itself free from the grasp of the parent, the parent can negotiate that child successfully across the highway of life to the other side. But if the child, it's not impossible, however unlikely, for the child to wrench itself free from the grasp of that strong grasp of the parent and go off and be hit by a car. Now, that's a little parable of the nature of apostasy. God does have a firm grip on your life. You don't need to worry about your salvation day after day or bite all your fingernails off wondering if you have assurance. Of course you do. As long as you love the Lord God and are seeking to serve him and believe the Bible is the word of God and all those things, even if you commit sin, the truth of the matter is that you are still within the fold and you're still working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, yes, there is assurance of salvation, but there's not an ironclad guarantee that you can't commit apostasy. And to me, that's really part of something that's inherent in faith. Faith means I am trusting the truths of these things in my life. That faith involves an element of trust, not an airtight guarantee about things. It means I trust God every single day. It's the assurance of things hoped for and a conviction about things that we don't yet see, as Hebrews 11.1 says. Okay. Uh, I want to ask just one more question here on apostasy because and it it popped in my mind whenever you were a little bit ago you were talking about grieving the holy spirit and it made me think of uh it made me think of Ephesians 4:29 do not grieve the holy spirit with whom you yeah. have been sealed until the day of redemption and, and well I'm let's curious. talk about seals for a minute yeah i wanted i wanted to every ask you that every seal every seal known to humankind in paul's day could be cracked and broken. Uh And everybody knew this. Wine vessels were sealed. Documents were sealed. Uh, Seals are not infallibly unbreakable of any kind. And so when they're using an analogy of God's grace sealing you, it simply means that God is protecting you and looking after you and has a strong grasp on your life. It doesn't mean it's impossible for you to do something that would not grieve the Holy Spirit or even, as in First Thessalonians, quench the Holy Spirit. You can do that, however unlikely that is. So a seal is not an ironclad guarantee that you'll, you'll um, not break the seal and do something desperate. 
Okay. I, actually, can I follow up? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I He's like, you can go next, Josh. But uh, I do have a follow-up. Well, I just want to... <laughs> Uh, okay, and we like to do the conscientious objector here. So yeah. uh, Ephesians 4 mentions the seal. Ephesians 1 also mentions the seal. So what would you say to somebody who says, well, you say it's not a guarantee, Dr. Weatherington, but Ephesians 1 actually uses the word guarantee. It says, having believed, we were marked in him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, which is to come. So it sounds like God is trying to help us feel secure uh, in our salvation. And so, Dr. Witherington, how would you respond to this conscientious objector? Well, first, I'd say that's a really bad translation of Ephesians <laughs> 1. Okay. I would say, because the word that you're translating guarantee doesn't mean what we in the 21st century would think of as a guarantee. Okay. What, did, what does it, it mean? It means assurance. Mm-hmm. And assurance is not the same thing as a guarantee. <laughs> it definitely is not. Yeah. So, you know, that that's the first thing. But let's deal with something else. Okay. One of the real problems about this whole soteriological discussion is that we come at it as late Western individualists. Whereas the concept of election in the Bible is a corporate thing. Israel was God's chosen and elect people. Uh-huh. We are only elect if we are in Christ. So there is this corporate sense of election. And by the way, election is not the same thing as salvation at all. All of Israel was God's chosen people, but a whole bunch of them didn't end up being saved. Look at the wilderness wandering Mm -hmm. generation. Furthermore, if Christ, as Ephesians says, is the elect one, guess what? He didn't need to be saved. Uh So salvation has to be something different from election. Election in the Bible has to do with group identity, and it has to do with God's specific historical persons, purposes. It does not have to do with how one gets saved. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus. It comes about as a result of the preaching of the word, as Romans 10 is very clear about that. So how is anybody going to be saved? They need to hear the preach word and respond to it by grace through faith. So I'm off, I often hear that um, this kind of idea of corporate election, uh, we have a, a guy on the show who'll come on uh, by the name of Leighton Flowers, along with we'll have Calvinistic uh, guys who come on the show as well. But Leighton has a very similar view of, of election. It seems as if those who are in Christ are elect. Um, elected yes. for a specific purpose. Uh, I hear accusations against him in particular that this is kind of a new view of election. Uh, as as someone who studied the history of Arminianism, can you, can you tell me when uh, do we start seeing that kind of language of election being used throughout history? Well, let's start with the New Testament. It's right there in the New Testament. After that, the great church fathers that were theologians, Jerome, Origen, and especially Christum, were all clear that election was a group thing mm. and salvation is an individual thing. So there was always that kind of distinction through early church history. We don't even have to get to the Reformation to get to that discussion. Mm-hmm. We can just read the Patristic Fathers and they'll tell you that. Okay. And, and how do you understand uh, passages like where an individual like Paul will say in Galatians 1.15, I was set apart from my mother's womb 
and I can't remember what it was like, maybe from my apostolic calling. I can't remember how the verse finishes, but yeah. Uh, and then Jeremiah one, I was, uh, you know, I, uh, from the womb, the Lord called him. What does that mean? How should we understand that? It has to do with God's historical person purposes of using those persons. And by the way, Isaiah says that the person that was God's chosen one, his Mashiach, his anointed one, was Cyrus. Mm-hmm. And that had nothing to do with his personal salvation. Mm-hmm. So, again, election for historical purposes is one thing. Salvation, personal individual salvation is another. And while we're on that little road, let's talk about the Roman road in Romans 8 just for a minute. I was just about what to ask it, about that. What does, it, what does it actually say? It says, God works all things together for good. For whom? For those who love God. Now, if you've done the study of the love language in Paul, you'll know that like 90% of the time, when Paul uses the phrase of like love of God, he's talking about God's love for us. But in the case of Romans 8, starting to read with Romans 8, 28 and going forward, or even a little before Romans 8, 28, it's those who love God, whom God is working all things together for good. And here's the real point. When you get to that long chain of justification, sanctification, glorification, etc., he who did this, he did this, he did this, the us in the Greek in Romans 8, 29 has as its antecedent those who love God, not those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the universe, those who love God, God has justified. Those who love God, God has sanctified. Those who love God have been will be glorified. So the destining is for all Christians. It's those who love God who are destined in advance to be conformed to the image of Christ. So all of that destining language has to do with the destiny and the destination of Christians, those who love God. It tells you nothing about how they came to love God in the first place, Mm -hmm. which was by grace through faith. In other words, Calvin mushed together the doctrine of election with the doctrine of individual salvation and then took the concept of predestination to be referring to something that happens to you before you respond to the gospel. Wrong. (laughs) It does not. It refers to God's beautiful plan for those who love God thereafter to eventually be destined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'd like to just kind of camp out on the the, the uh, eight twenty eight through thirty that little passage there. I just want to read it yeah. in my English translation and and make perfect sense of why this would be confusing, and then have you kind of unpack that Greek that you mentioned there. It says, "And we uh, uh, that is for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son." in order that we may be the firstborn among many brethren, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you're saying here in verse uh, 28, and we know that those who love God, all things work 
together for good. Uh, and then it yep. goes into, uh, for those who are called according to his purpose, and then verse 28, for those whom he foreknew. So in my English translation, it's... Stop, right, stop right there. Okay. The us is those whom God foreknew. The antecedent of those whom God foreknew is those who love God. Mm. Got it, got it, got it. That's that's the problem right there. This is a continuous flow of thought. And while we're there, in the latter half of Romans 8, where he says, neither powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Uh, what's not in that list? You. Right. You yourself are not in that list. So the promise has to do with no, no external circumstances and no external persons, not even angels, not even the devil can separate you from the love of God. Okay. Now it's a reassurance to you that as long as you are in the will of God, as long as you love God, as long as you're allowing God to control your life and direct your paths towards uh, increasingly bearing the image of Christ, you don't have anything to worry about. Circumstances, pandemics, disasters, protests, looting, whatever it is, none of that can separate you from the, the love of God. None of that can do that. And of course, this is a great assurance. And who is Paul giving this assurance to? To people who are already Christians in Rome. Mm -hmm. He's not addressing pagans in all of this. He's addressing Christians and reassuring them that despite persecution, despite prosecution, despite possible execution, none of that can separate them from the love of God. Hallelujah. That's the great promise. No person can do that to you. No circumstance can do that to you. So the promise has to do with those external factors, whether circumstances or persons, who cannot remove you from the strong grasp of God and from the love of God. And that is a very great reassurance indeed. What it's not telling you is how you can relate to God and, and whether or not it's possible, however unlikely, for you to commit apostasy. So it's important that you not read Romans 8 outside of the context of texts like Galatians 5, or various other places along the way where uh, apostasy is taken very seriously in the New Testament. Um, you know, I was reading a commentary by Greg Beale, who is a friend who's certainly very reformed. I was reading his commentary on First Thessalonians. And one of the things he said is, uh, he was answering the question, why is Paul warning all of the Thessalonians, all of them? Why is he warning all of them against the dangers of uh, serious sin and even apostasy? When some of them, he knows perfectly well, couldn't possibly commit apostasy because they're predestined. He's trying to answer that question, okay? <laughs> and here's his answer. Well, actually, Paul is just warning those who are not predestined to be saved. Now, what sense does that make? Let's think about this. In other words, it's not a serious warning at all. Mm -hmm. Those who are saved and already predestined from before the foundation of the world to be eternally saved can't possibly commit apostasy. And those who are not 
predestined to be saved. Well, they're not even capable of apostasy. And the warning just falls on deaf ears because they're just going to keep on being who they are. You know, uh, you have to take the ethical warnings in the New Testament about serious sin and even apostasy seriously and not pretend that they're not directed to all Christians. Uh Indeed, of course they are. And they're directed towards genuine Christians. So here's the thing. If you mess up the theology of the New Testament, then you're going to mess up the ethics of the New Testament as well. And and those two things go together. God says, I'm holy. You should be holy. Mm -hmm. So I... Uh, back in in Romans eight, I want to come to that word foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he also yes. predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's a word that Paul uses in Romans eleven two. Uh, whenever he says God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew, I've heard Calvinists uh, define this term as foreknew. That word know it just it speaks of no uh, foreknew known. to know intimately beforehand and uh and so this uh, a calvinist might say hey this, this speaks of that that you've heard this called the golden chain of salvation i know you've already addressed like hey this isn't talking about how people choose christ for salvation it's speaking of their wonderful future but i know much of the calvinist uh argument depends on this word for new so i'm curious about how you would understand it well yeah let's talk about romans 9 through 11 for a minute okay God foreknew those uh, in advance who were going to reject him. And yet he still loved them. And yet he still chose them for specific historical purposes. And that's exactly. So the word foreknew doesn't mean foredestined. Mm -hmm. These are two different words. They don't mean the same thing. It means that God knows in advance what is the case. Well, of course he does. You know, we're not we're not surprising God. God is not sitting up in heaven going, angels, I hadn't thought about that. This person down here on earth came up with this. We need to reconsider and replan things. No, God is omniscient. He knows things in advance. He knows things on the spot. He knows things from the past, from the future, whatever. He knows all possibilities. He knows all actualities. But, of course, what it really comes down to, friends, is your view of God's sovereignty. How does God's sovereignty work? Mm-hmm. I know that's a big point. How, you does, it, how does it really work? Is it, is it monergistic? Is it, in fact, true that God is the cause of all things? Well, as a first cause of the creation of the universe, yes. That's true. He is the prime mover and the first cause of all things. That's true. However, the scriptures are equally clear that God is not the author of evil. Now, does evil happen in the world? I don't know any serious Christian that would say no. Of course it does. God is not the author of evil. He's not the author of sin. James is pretty clear. God tempts nobody. And he can't be tempted to do that which is wicked or evil. That would be totally against his moral character. And yet there's plenty of sin and wickedness in the world. So where does it come from? It You can talk about God's permissive will. 
But here's the thing. The real truth of the matter is that God has enabled angels and human beings to have a certain quantity of freedom of choice by his grace, by his grace to make decisions. And unfortunately, many human beings make the wrong choices all the time. I mean, I'll give you an example of a worldview. Uh, a Presbyterian who's very reformed and a Methodist who's very not are going to a ministerial meeting in downtown Lexington. It's raining. They're in a hurry. They're in the same car. They get out. The Presbyterian gets out first, is hurrying down the steps. He slips and falls to the bottom and picks himself up and says, well, I'm surely glad that's over with now. But the same thing happens to the Methodist when he falls down the steps and he says, well, I'll have to be more careful next time. The first person thought that he was destined for that to happen, and he's glad it's over with. The first, second person thought, my behavior affects my outcome, and I'd better be more careful next time. Now, it, that's just a small example, but it, it really raises the question, how does God exercise his sovereignty? Nobody's disputing that God is almighty, at least I hope not. But the Bible's really darn clear about that. The issue is, has God enabled creatures other than the deity to make viable choices? And do they have the power of contrary choice? Is it possible for them to violate the will of God? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, they have the power to violate the will of God. That's what sin is. Sin is a rejection of the will of God about some particular subject. So it's not a question of these Christians believe in the sovereignty of God and these don't. The question is, how does God's sovereignty work? Hmm. I'd like to, if we could, hang out. Like we talked about Romans 8 and 9 as, as kind of these really strong texts that uh, that we use in this conversation. We use the idea of election at the beginning. Uh, we know that the, the the passage in Romans 9 talking about Esau and Jacob. Esau I've loved, Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Sorry, I almost got that backwards. Uh, and, and we see that that's kind of a quote uh, in Malachi. And I frequently hear the kind of Armenian non-Calvinist position say, see, these are nations. These aren't individuals. Uh, but then the Calvinist responds, ah, but here in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, we see Moses and Pharaoh, individuals for election. How can we make sense of this individual versus corporate election? Well, that's a good question, and it requires a, a longer answer than I can give you okay. tonight. But but what I would, would say about that is that you, we come at that question starting with the individual and then thinking, oh, corporate is something that's a composition of a whole bunch of individuals. See, this is just the opposite of how the ancients would have viewed this. Hmm. Group identity is primary. Individual identity is secondary. Okay. For example, have you noticed people in the New Testament don't have last names? I mean, Christ is not Jesus's last name. Magdalene is not Mary's last name. Just Judas why? is a last name. Why? Why is why is that? Iscariot. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's Judas from Kyrios. You know, uh -huh. uh, he's identified by the place he comes from. Okay. Mm -hmm. So their group identity is right. primary. 
their individual identity is secondary. The problem is we read that since the Enlightenment, which would include the Reformation as well, since then, we have read the whole of the Bible with individualistic eyes. Now, I will also say to you that if you know your Hebrew and you know Aramaic, neither of those languages have good comparative mechanisms. Even Cranfield, a very reformed commentator on Romans, says what the phrase uh, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate means is that Jacob was chosen for positive historical person purposes and Esau was not. It doesn't mean that God personally hated Esau, the individual. It doesn't mean that. Mm -hmm. It means that he had these purposes for these two people groups. And uh, it, unfortunately, in Hebrew, it's not directly possible to say love more than or love less than. So how do you do that? You use antonyms. How do you make a comparison? You use antonyms to make a comparison. Jacob, I have chosen and I love. Esau, not so much, as we would say. Right. Okay. And then uh, I want to come to when we talk about election and the corporate versus individual nature, uh, one of the go-tos for any Calvinist would be Ephesians chapter 1, and God chose us. It doesn't use the word election, but it does use the word choose. God chose us in him before the in foundation Christ. of the world. He didn't choose us. He didn't choose us apart from Christ. He chose us in Christ. And let's think about that for a minute, because they, the in Christo formula keeps being repeated like a bell ringing uh -huh. again and again throughout that passage. Now, here's the deal. The person who existed before the foundation of the universe that God chose to save the world is Jesus. If there's anybody that has been predestined before the foundation of the world, it's Jesus. He is the one who has been chosen, who is the elect one. And we are only elect from before the foundation of the world if we are in him who was there. After all, we weren't there to be chosen by God before the foundation of the universe. But Jesus was the son of God. The preexistent son of God was there. So this is all about him and being in him. If we are in him, we get to claim to be persons that are um, connected to the one who was there before the foundation of the universe and has been destined okay. in advance to be our savior. Okay. And so uh, I just want to hear, like, if you were to give your own sort of like message Bible translation of Ephesians 1, I think it's verse 3, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What would be your paraphrase of that? Um. It, it, it's we who God foreknew are chosen in him, not in him over here and chosen over here. Uh -huh. Where were we chosen? In something that already existed before the foundation of the world. Okay. We were chosen in him. That, that's how it happened. Okay. Good. I would be curious. And I know we're, we're coming up on our time, so this will be our last question for you. Um, but the uh, the idea that God chose Jacob and Esau, that he had positive plans for Jacob, he had negative plans for Esau. Uh, would this mean that people in the Old Testament did not receive a prevenient grace? 
that provenient grace is something that's selectively new to the New Testament, and that if you weren't within the ethnic group of Israel, you didn't get provenient grace? How would you understand that? No, I, I, I think that prevenient grace is something that God has graciously bestowed on lots of people. And remember, remember, there are passages like Hosea 11, where it's very clear that God doesn't just love Israel. Mm-hmm. He loves these other nations, too. In fact, it was Israel which was chosen to be what? A light to the nations they weren't chosen to be the holy huddle Uh or the frozen chosen they were chosen for historical purposes to be a light to everybody else and why because god wanted to create a family out of all the nations of the world amen and that's very clear in the new testament you know in christ there is neither jew nor gentile slave nor free no male and female barbarian, Scythian, Greek, Roman, whatever, but all are one in Christ. The the goal was God so loved the world that he wanted the world to be saved. Now, some people refuse to be saved. They don't want anything to do with it. No, thank you, God. But the truth of the matter is that from the beginning, after the fall, God chose his chosen people not to be the only saved group on the planet. He chose them to be a light to the nations. So all of these other nations could be incorporated into the saving purposes of God. And that was always true, both in the Old and New Testament. So, I mean, I could give you dozens of examples of previous grace showing up in the Old Testament with various people. And not just people, even animals. Remember Balaam's donkey? He was more spiritually insightful than a prophet. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. How did that happen? By the grace of God, of course. (laughs) By the grace of God, that happened. It's important to realize that God's grace is consistent (laughs) in the Old Testament. He goes. He goes. Do God's do do our pets go to heaven? It's like no, we're not. We're not going down that road. Not tonight. Uh, <laughs> Only the elect species. That that is how sorry because the Calvinists da- that are watching much. this would be like, oh yeah, first you get provenient grace, and so now we got all this animalology that we're okay, we're not we're not going down that. Or, we're not or, or we could go all political, and I could tell you that um, God chose the donkey. As opposed to an elephant. Oh, wow. And that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, This was an exciting program. Uh, If you enjoyed it, hit the subscribe button, hit the like. Uh, If you didn't like that last statement, I might edit it out. There's no telling. No, I'm just kidding, guys. Uh, But seriously, uh, tune in. We have tons of pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations that we interview on subjects just like this. such an honor to have you, uh, Dr. Witherington, to come on the show. Thank you. Appreciate you giving us your time. Uh, we look forward to uh, it, watching your ministry moving forward in the books that you guys are releasing out there. Uh, again, tell us, how do we get in contact with you and your ministry? Uh, maybe books you've written on this subject for people who want to follow up. Well, one of the things I would really encourage this audience to read is to read one of my best-selling books called The Problem with Evangelical Theology. Okay. Oh, wow. In which, I, which I'm equal opportunity critiquer of everything. Reformed theology, Pentecostal theology, Calvinist, uh, Wesleyan theology, uh, all of it, the whole shebang, Uh, Baptist theology, you name it. I'm an equal opportunity critiquer of it all. But it's, it's important that we understand 
from that particular book that all of our theological systems have human elements in it and flaws. Nobody has got the biblical theology nailed down perfectly. And so there needs to be some humility in our theological discussions. Love that. Excellent. I love that. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Subscribe. Peace. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.